North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, Our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. Dr. Coons, last episode, we began talking about climate change. And as a Gen X child of the 80s and 90s, much like Elon Musk and and Joe Rogan, I'm in in good company here, I think. Um, I remember global warming. I remember the first time I learned about global warming. It was, I believe, on a Newsweek issue cover. My family took Newsweek at the time, voted Democrat, but read Newsweek. I go figure. Um, and I remember being really, really scared actually. And, and I asked my mom about it and, and I don't know that my mom was always the, the most reliable source of information on science, technology, and the future of the earth, but she kind of told me not to worry about it. And, and I, and so I didn't. Um, and then I remember the shift to climate change from global warming. I remember the shift of that language and the way I learned of that was, and I can't remember where, um, but it was along the lines of, well, global warming is not going to work as a narrative because you can't prove it. But if we talk about climate change now, it doesn't matter. We can just say it uh, yeah. and everyone will believe it. 
as a young earth creationist, I know you mentioned that uh, in the last episode, like climate change isn't something biblically that we're really uh, in, in some sort of like it never happens point of view. Uh, the flood would have been a significant effect climate of, of climate change, right? Yeah, it, was, uh, really, it is really, on climate change. Yeah, it's Maybe a big the, one. the biggest one ever. Yeah. And, and we and we definitely have a, a promise from our Lord that he will not do that again. There is this fascinating little line. Uh, that our Lord speaks, I believe it's in Luke's gospel and it's on the way to the cross. And I have, I've always wanted to mess with it in terms of a dystopian science fiction story. Uh, and he says, you know, do not weep for me. Uh, if they do this when the tree is green, what will they do when the tree is brown? Now, I, I, if I run my biblical theology through it, I think it's maybe more having to deal with the destruction of Jerusalem and his foretelling of the kind of atrocities that he had already foretold that would happen to the Israelites. Um, but but then again, I mean, the green tree, brown tree, I mean, you, you can really play with that there. The promise that there will not be another worldwide flood does not equate with the promise that there will not be a worldwide Mad Max heated lack of water scenario. Um all of this being the case, I think that being afraid that your mayor isn't doing enough about climate change is certainly on the level of fanatical unawareness of reality. Like you just you're expecting a lot more of man's capacity than than man can do. And this is doubly true for the Western mm, sheep <laughs> herded human uh, who thinks that by getting rid of diesel engines, we're going to stop some sort of global climate shift when other industrializing nations like China and, and India are doing by far the greater amount of, of carbon footprinting uh, in the world today. So with all of that said, and with the thrust being recognizing that we are under a managed narrative that is managing the story so that it can twist our emotions enough that we are easy enough to control and change our behaviors, how are we going to shift now into well, what's next? We're going to, we're going to shift by doing something that was, as we talked about last week done with COVID, but I think is being much more powerfully done now because climate change is so vague and could be admitted over time. And we said, you know, what is actually at stake here is man-made specifically Western man-made climate change is that now you can have a set of personal reactions. You can have a kind of a church gathered around that central dogma. And then that dogma will have, let's say, sacramental and other ritual behaviors attendant upon it, as well as an orientation to unbelievers that will necessarily, if possible, impale those unbelievers for their unbelief and for their blasphemy. So precisely what needs to be done will remain subject to discussion, right? So it could mean that you need to cease jet travel, or we need airlines to cut off many routes in order to decrease their carbon footprint. Like you said, rightly, this doesn't really include India or China. And, and maybe based on how things are aligned geopolitically, it won't include Russia or Brazil as well. In that group, there used to be South Africa, but that's not a terribly internationally serious country currently. So I'm not as concerned about that. And it would probably be a source of, quote, climate refugees. So 
the refusal to go along with climate change as an agenda will go back and forth, but what it will generally increasingly impose upon people in a way that COVID did really rapidly. So it's not like they need a lot of time to do this, but the scale of climate change is in its own way bigger than COVID because it affects all sectors of society indefinitely, right? So COVID is because of its nature, a, a limited time narrative. It doesn't mean that it can't affect behavior indefinitely in the same way that we still take off our shoes because of the shoe bomber, <laughs> you know, uh, or we still have the TSA because of 9-11 with guys that had some of them pilots licenses from the state of Florida or gained in the state of Florida. It's not like it can't affect behavior. What I mean is that climate change as a, an eschatological agenda is so sweeping because it affects the physical, the material bases of our society and the way that we live, which is dependent upon fossil fuel energy for everything, for it to come into existence or for it to come to us, or maybe both in the case of plastics that we get shipped to us. So it's enormous and therefore has enormous potential for change. It's why I'm highlighting it right after prohibition, because I think it will be even more sweeping as it is increasingly brought in at different rates in different places than prohibition was. That's going to have several different markers and it has its own history that we'll talk about this week, but it could be even bigger than prohibition. That language of eschatological agenda is is really key, I think, and the tie into it being a form of nature worship. And it reminds me, as we're talking about it uh, at the last episode, uh, of Shinto and some of our conversation about the way that Shinto is practiced, where it sort of is and isn't a religion at the same time. But when it tells you mm -hmm. to do things, you do them and you do them with full force and full energy in the belief that this is what will make your society function well and, yeah. and certainly with, with, with without that that connection point, the idea that we are in a a driving control of a of a paradisical utopian, but not in the sense that that, that words come to mean like it's impossible, but they don't think it's utopian, a paradisical yeah. future that we can achieve if only we all get the right pieces in line. And well, I guess I guess my question a little bit is, does the top really believe that? Do the priests really think this, or is this just a matter of uh, the opiate of the people? I think that as with any as with any false religion, there will be, even at the highest levels, a combination of belief and unbelief. There are sincere believers who who trust that the things that they're saying to other people are actually true. I mean, it's sincerity is no index of truth. It's just an index of how much someone means something, whether true or false. So I think you can find sincere people at every, at every sort of a level. Certain systems or certain systems of belief, as well as certain ways of organizing um, groups politically, are going to produce more or fewer unbelievers, right? So at various times, I mean, <laughs> prior to the counter-reformation, there are a lot more cynical people in, you know, the Roman Catholic church at the highest levels than there are later on. They, they do get much more sincerely believing men in counter-reformation times as certain ways of especially training priests changed. So I, I, I mean, I have, I have met such sincere believers, not at any enormously high level, but 
there are people who who believe this and and who order their life to some degree or other accordingly, right? There are also going to be people who are utterly cynical about it, who nonetheless enforce it upon us. So, I, I mean, I think the same thing happened with COVID, right? I I think there are people who believed and who got vaccinated, for example, and and believe that it was really helping other people. Those are the kinds of people who, especially, I think sincerity probably decreases when you get into the highest echelons of anything, because in a human group, the most talented people are are probably most prone just as a percentage to be insincere and, and as it were, sociopathic. Probably in middle management, you find the highest degree of sincerity as you do with, on, in the case of Twitter, you know, I don't know whether Justin Trudeau believes what he's tweeting. I know that people who list, you know, their master's of public health degree in their Twitter bio believe <laughs> in what they're saying and believe in, you know, whatever number booster and stuff. So that's, that's how I think about this, this question of, of belief or unbelief, even among the, as it were, the priestly caste. Yeah, and I I couldn't agree more with regard to the middle management level of priests. Those who are truly fanatic, and you hear them being fanatic, by and large, I think that they uh, they have a faith at that point. Right. Um, It's whether or not uh, the ISF board of directors actually thinks that climate change is is the real problem facing us, or whether it's just it's just the tool by which to manage the herd. Right. Yeah. I mean. It, it has to do with, with some things that we'll talk about this week, but also some things that are enormous questions in that way, basically philosophical questions, such as we've sometimes discussed, but need to be recalled, the dominance, for example, of social science as the paradigm for how we get managed, which is to take the most inexact things with the most apparently, but not actually exact ways of describing them. And then to use that as a public policy tool. So if we take these actions, let's say if we go along with the Paris Agreement or the Kyoto Protocol or the Glasgow, you know, summit that happened earlier within maybe the past 12 months, I can't remember if it was 21 or 22. If we take those actions, then we'll go down to, I mean, you can find these charts. Like if we take these actions, here's what's going to happen by 2030. Here's what's going to happen by 2050. If we don't take these actions, here's what's going to happen. If we take some of them, here's what's going to happen. Those are all dogmatic statements concerning things that are really, really hard to measure or to know at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, to go back to the religious metaphor again, I mean, they're, they're prophecies. They're prophecies. It's, I, I mean, it, it's, it's so, it's, it's just so tiresome. I mean, it's tiresome to be around people like that. Maybe not all the, maybe, maybe more of the listeners are like sincere and designed for belonging to sincere groups than I am, but I just find people like that tiresome. I mean, it's just so tiresome. Everything has to have some kind of moral and essentially theological significance. And you can never relax because you're always busy being good. And if you're not being good, then that's because probably somebody else is forcing you to be evil and that that demon needs to be slain so that you can be even better than you already are. I mean, it's just, yeah, yeah. it's so tiresome and juvenile. This is some and weird it, combination of, of Lutheran dogmatics and too much television. I, I really am convinced of that. And I don't, I don't know how to, 
prove that at all. Speaking of social science categories and assertions, right? But like, I, <laughs> I, I am completely convinced that that being Full raised disclosure. on movies, yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, being raised on movies, and this gets to what we talked about last time, like the the screen having an, an impact on your ability to socialize, a negative impact on your ability yeah. to socialize. Being yeah. raised on these these internal uh, gnosticizing uh, experiences of life that are always filled with meaning and emotion, right? That you got to now go and import into yeah. your life with the Lutheran dogmatic that involves uh, your, your complete and abject, miserable, original sinfulness that you need to like feel but you can't do anything about it you're safe from it and so now like a good calvinist like, like get sanctified and stuff and and somewhere in there through the the belly inward navel gazing of the second use of the law uh sermon sandwich approach uh combined with again this this hyper gnostic uh, uh reliving of what i believe life is because of the movies uh, somewhere in there that that has impacted the way that we are as as a people and, it, and it, maybe you weren't just talking about us and your experience with us as as an outsider oh. now insider but but i i don't think it's too far off either i i get what the thing i was thinking about directly was was the predominance and it's to me, still an open question, only slightly open, however, the predominance of dogmatism over observation, either historical or, or present tense experiential observation in, in human thought, and especially in human groups, that human beings are inclined toward assent to dogmatisms. For example, the what what I think of honestly, just sort of the meme of sustainable energy, hmm. because I need fossil fuels to produce the material that can capture wind or solar energy. I need them. I need rare earths for the batteries to store that energy and then to transmit it to the grid. And I need fossil fuel enabled vehicles at the very least to haul and then to maintain those renewable energy sources. And no one stops and thinks about that. I mean, it is, it is far worse in its way because it has such far reaching effects on everyone's life than some, you know, stupid assertion by someone somewhere in, you know, Harrison County, West Virginia, that he can pick up snakes and not get bitten. I mean, that's that's an acceptable thing to make fun of is snake handling churches and that's a misreading of scripture all that's happening there is a prediction of what's going to happen in acts really at the end of mark 16 but that is much less harmful to to a much smaller group of people yeah. than the assertion that this is that sustainable energy is sustainable if something is dependent on another thing for its existence then the question is then the sustainability of the actual basis and the actual basis is still fossil fuels. So this, this, I mean, and obviously sustainables have been enormously lucrative in terms of government contracting and, and, and rebates and things like that already, but just the assertion that there are sustainable energy sources and unsustainable energy sources, and we need to shut down the only actually self-sustaining energy source, which is nuclear power, we need to shut that down as well as fossil fuel extraction and usage in order to shift to sustainables. And this is this is already widespread enough that it's it's down to the level of consumption. I mean, if you live in certain 
jurisdictions, you know, let's say you're buying from Con Ed in the, you know, New York metro area, you can choose to buy from greener sources. You can pay more and you can buy your energy, whatever that means, right? I mean, so the other thing here is just the, I mean, it's, it's the absurdity of separation, but this is how religions function. Just don't think too much. The absurdity of separation, like, well, your electricity is flowing cleanly from, you know, this wind farm in Northern Vermont, but, you know, the guy downstairs from you in the same building, his energy is flowing from some filthy source, you know, from, you know, coal from Wyoming. And so you're effectively a better human being than he is. All of this relies on the assertion that sustainable energy is itself sustainable. And that it's even a concept, which yeah, and, and right. <laughs> as you talk about it, I can't help but think about Minecraft and the modded versions of it, which I played And one of the goals is always to create some form of self-sustaining or higher efficiency level loop of energy to power all the stuff mm. you want to do. But okay. it's always carrot and stick. And there's always a level at which, like, now I've got this thing that's sucking. It just never. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're chasing the impossible dream of fusion is what you're doing. And, okay. uh, yeah. you know, uh, in, in, and I think that is what, you know, like you point out, nuclear energy fission is the closest thing that we've got to this. And right. it has like this big post 1980s 1990s like that's bad for the environment label on it even though it is kind of the cleanest thing that that we have found so far um right. i think all of that's really worth re-emphasizing but i don't want to get too far away from my, my tangent point that still connects which is this uh, tendency toward dogmatism over wisdom in in all things in yeah. all things so the problem for the Lutheran conversation, period, is not that we have the wrong dogma. It's that we think that just by stating it, it's going to actually do anything to somebody. As and when we do so without wisdom, when we do so without the ability to perceive what's going on around us. And this gets back to our conversation last time about you know laughing in somebody's face, which I, <laughs> I advocated, I guess. Um, but but like that, your whole point is like, well, that would not be a wise response, even though it might be the most true response, right? And so uh, discovering wisdom and uh, a way to be wise in the midst of a dogmatic world, which is being dogmatic about the idea that we can have uh, non-clear future utopian realities like permanent energy sources that never cost anything. Um, yeah, it, it, it calls for wisdom above all things here. Right. Yeah. And that wisdom wisdom relies on observation and i mean there there are to some degree a maybe about a hundred year maybe about a hundred and twenty year history of observations supporting the idea that the earth is warming these begin in scandinavia about about a hundred years ago they are especially then reinforced by scientists particularly an observer in La Jolla, California named Charles Keeling, who produces something called the Keeling curve, which is the basis for a lot of those graphs about anthropogenic climate change that you might see. The, the point is not that there aren't people that have had this hypothesis. The point is that when you look at that hypothesis, it has to be evaluated experientially and but that is not the way that science actually functions socially 
I mean, it's, it's not the way that education or having a high vocabulary level functions socially. So if I say anthropogenic, then I already quote, sound smart. If I say I have a PhD, then I sound smart. If I say that I have a PhD in this topic, now I'm a quote expert. All science functions religiously in human groups. It doesn't function scientifically, which is why I said my mind is only slightly open and it's just open because of some sort of congenital, probably defective optimism that I have in this case that I, I would like to believe that human groups are, and, and human beings individually are actually open to wisdom. And I think that probably on an individual scale concerning one's own life, that is possible for anyone. Certainly that would be the intention of the existence of the book of Proverbs, which is addressed to very particular everyday life situations. But on a larger scale than one's own life and the people that you come into contact with, it's very, very hard to have wisdom because it relies on a capacity to sift observations as well as have observations. That is to tell, have some sort of intuition or hunch or capacity for judgment about other people's observations as well as your own, since you can't have them about, about everything. And at this point, it's therefore not laughable, certainly not for our media, that the new Supreme Court Justice Ketenji Brown-Jackson would say that she, she can't define what a woman is because she's not a biologist. That, that is an ultimate seeding of wisdom in a matter where obviously she should be able to judge and have the wisdom to judge what a woman is and what a man is. I mean, we know politically why she's not saying it, obviously, but point being the out that she used in order to avoid you know, this horrible question that would be transphobic if she answered it wrongly the out that she used was, I'm not an expert. So I think that this is becoming clearer that science cannot and does not, and, and does not wish to function scientifically. That is through observation and revision. It wants to, and does function religiously or, or Levitically in a priestly fashion. And, you know, that was obvious enough and nobody's really surprised by, a, by that observation. The point is that therefore what is being built is, is a religious structure or a religious substructure to social and political action, not just, you know, I, I love science. Like, let me tell you why the sky is blue because of refracted light or something. <laughs> this is, this is not just like, I like to, you know, I can tell you all the different kinds of turtles that exist in my state. This is, this is a, a, a priestly function that it has in ensuring that, you know, perception and emotion and behavior are, are changed in accordance with the desire of the managers. It makes me want to kind of tangent and, and ask the question, like, what is, what is science and how is it redeemed? Because it, it as it becomes increasingly yeah. religious, it, those of us who are wanting to start new things, for example, I think you saw on the Discord, again, this will be a couple of weeks ago for the listener, uh, this farm uh, in institution in Iowa that's a Lutheran yeah. uh, study sustainable farming. I'm, I'm not even, I don't even know my, my like extended cousin connected me to that and put it in there um, because it's, it's between the two small towns that, that we hail from effectively that my, my mother's side hails from. So it's kind of just like this really cool spot for, for us. Like, Oh, look at that. Um, but what they're doing is they're trying to be scientists about farming as Lutherans. 
And yet when you say that be scientists, like you immediately are in a different school than, uh, than we really want to pursue. Right. So that is sort of my question then is, um, how do we replace science? Yeah. Uh, how do we well, I, take it back? Yeah. Yeah. Science, science is an importation of the Latin word for knowledge into the English language in order to denote just a whole separate realm of knowledge from all other realms, possessing also a greater certainty than all other realms, so that that utterly certain objective realm can govern everything else. I would prefer to think of what is called science or the natural sciences as simply natural philosophy, that is, the love of wisdom concerning nature and then its exploration in biology or agriculture or botany or the stars or the seas or anything else, the lakes, right? Which is limnology. So all of those ologies are simply the pursuit of wisdom as it is on display in nature. All of that, therefore, requiring observation. You know, the, the non-empirical, it just sort of seems to be out there and we find it branch of what might be thought of as the sciences is classically simply mathematics. Everything that we think of as the sciences as hard and objective to, you know, to one degree or another with maybe physics or chemistry thought of as very hard and, and biology as maybe squishier and then practical applications of the sciences, such as agricultural science being still squishier, I think of as just all entirely natural philosophy therefore subject to observation and revision and reformulation. And that's a perspective that therefore relates it to philosophy more generally with theology having a traditional relationship to philosophy as the queen, with philosophy in all of her branches, including natural philosophy, as the handmaiden. And that is clear and, and I think rather simple and puts in order of greater or lesser certainty, what is properly more or less certain with theology being far more certain than climate science. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I like it. I like it. I like yeah. natural philosophy as a, as a category from my own, my own reference points. That's very helpful. Um, speaking of categories, I had no reference for before your notes, the, yeah. the ESG yeah. as a form of policy management. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah. I'll let you explain them, but I, I'm going to see if I can connect it to something. You can tell me if I'm wrong. Okay. So when, when, uh, back in my WeTV days and we started the nonprofit WeTV, one of the things that I, I learned from my partner was that there were all these organizations that if you would spend a lot of time filling out some paperwork for them, you could get their seal that would then go on your website for your nonprofit so that you would be yep. more likely to get big donors. And right. that seemed like a great idea at the time, but but looking back on it, I really feel like they were just middlemen taking money from you and time from you in order to further their own agenda uh, while you kind of were, were promoting them um, for right. a cost. Does that sound right. about right? Yeah. And ESG means environmental, social, and governance. And it is an acronym imported really from discussion of investments and what used to be called alternative investing or maybe alternative investments, but now is mainstream. So like when you hear that anything from, you know, this activist investor wants ExxonMobil to have a certain, you know, amount of 
R&D, and then eventually production drawn from renewable sources by 2025, that is actually framed. And I think this is a pretty, this is pretty helpful because it's just so open. That's actually the same agenda under the ESG acronym as you need, you can't have, uh, you know, a, a corporate board entirely composed of heterosexual white males. It, that's that's all the same thing. Now, again, like we talked about in the last episode, this is managed by a constellation. So your local, you know, Black Lives Matter chapter doesn't care about the E as much as it cares about the G because G indicates political power in governance structures for Blacks. The E is obviously going to be cared a lot more about by, you know, Greenpeace or Earth Keepers, but it's all it's also the harnessing of what would otherwise be, let's say, free radicals within the left in the service of corporate governance and corporate structures. So it's kind of brilliant in that way. And this is, I mean, it just as a tactic, <laughs> not morally, but, uh, but as a tactic. And this is a new development because we've moved from the point where you have things brought into media awareness, brought into popular awareness. So 1968's The Population Bomb by Paul Ehrlich is a pretty important book, but back then the environmental movement was still doing what are now thought of to be like racist things, like advocating against any immigration to Western countries, because why would you bring more people to pollute more in the places that pollute the most? Like it sort of makes sense in its own way. So, I mean, especially in California, the environmental movement was wildly anti-immigrant in the 60s and 70s and even into the 80s. And that's when people like Garrett Hardin started to really get in trouble, politically speaking, on the left for that. But it, it, that, that hadn't reached the level of like anyone at Procter & Gamble caring, right? And then in the 70s and into the early 80s, you get the narrative that we mentioned last time of global cooling. Again, that was not always a majority concern of environmentalists or people that watch these things or care about them or believe in them, but it, it was probably the biggest thing in population movement. And remember that it never really matters in order to change people's everyday behavior, what any one particular person that actually knows about the subject knows. <laughs> Doesn't matter. It matters that right now it has snowed a lot, let's say in the winter of 1978. And then you come out with the, you know, the time article or whatever, talking about global cooling. That's what matters, right? So like what you were saying about global warming in the eighties and nineties, then it got, it got pretty clear that it was going to be about global warming. Well, okay. I mean, I remember this insane blizzard and I don't remember if it was 92 or 93, I was little, but I was off school. So I was old enough to go to school for a long time for an area where snow doesn't hang around constantly all the time. And at that point, it would have been not very opportune <laughs> to say, hey, the earth is warming up a lot. But if it's really hot in like August, then maybe let's mention that an old person died today in the city. And let's mention that it hasn't been this hot since 1931. And everyone's like, that's before I was born. Wow, it must be so hot these days. You know, so that's that's how this works, right? It's that's about management, about perception management, which then creates emotion, emotional and behavioral management. So that's, I mean, ESG is really clever and that's only come around in, in a big way in the past 10 years in order to unite 
the left behind corporate, that is also governmental ways of handling things. Okay. So they don't like push in some other direction that would be anti-social or anti our political structure. And it's in favor of corporations, which as we're going to talk about next week and thereafter using Alfred Chandler's work called the visible hand is really determinative of who we are and, and why we are the way we are. So it's going to, I'm going to manage everything through corporations and I'm going to do it by saying, Hey, guess what? We're trying, as we say, you know, <laughs> these days we're trying to do better. We're learning, we're listening, and we're trying to do better. And ESG is just the acronym that captures all of that, all the way from climate change to why, like, a, you know, a queer trans black woman is going to be our, our CEO now. Why would corporations want to deindustrialize? Corporations would want to deindustrialize. That's such a good way to ask the question. They would want to deindustrialize de because they are more than ever financialized. So they do not really rely on certainly not domestic production, industrially speaking, if both their structures, their revenue sources, and really their business model is based on financial as opposed to industrial dynamics. So an industrial dynamic would be how much based on this supply chain with this logistical network, let's say running between, just take like a 19th century example, running between we raise cotton in the American South and then we process it in the North of England and then we sell that back to the Americans. Okay, that's, a, that's like a basic raw material to point of sale network in the 19th century. It's, it's one of the biggest. It, it makes the North of England what it is. That has to do with producing actual things. I, I know this is kind of maybe strange to, to some of the listeners. A lot of you actually work in these corporations, so you know this. But corporations don't need to make anything. Many of them behave at this point and even explicitly have arms devoted to venture capital. But many of them behave the way that, that venture capitalists that we talked about way back, and we could maybe go back to because there's plenty more to say, that venture capitalists would, in the case of early New England, which is where the model comes from. So they're not actually, this developed for the sake of whaling. They have nothing, they don't know anything about harpoons or whales or rendering whale blubber and turning it into oil or selling the oil or how to make lamps or how to make ships or how to repair ships or how to sail or how to sew sails. None of that matters. It's just money going into endeavors that make money. And that can be extremely distant from you. You have absolutely no connection. So if the, if the corporation can make money, that's really what matters. It really has nothing to do with whether anything is actually produced or the quality of that product. That's an orientation toward what a corporation is for that is at this point extremely old fashioned. I mean, and, and even in his own day, Henry Ford's attitude toward his products, which was, I think, fundamentally industrial rather than financial, the way I'm talking about, was thought of as odd. <laughs> you know, it's like, you actually want to make something that if a person buys it, he's never going to need to buy anything else from you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but that's a, just an, that's an odd attitude when you could just make more money by financializing things. And we've talked about this on the show before, as the American economy has increasingly financialized, that is, 
as it has de-industrialized and now our economy is more and more dependent on real estate investment and various kinds of capital investments, maybe somehow sheltered here, but, but, but placed overseas, such as the production is actually overseas and, and so on and so forth, offshoring of so many things. They don't need production or industrialization to continue here. I mean, this is, this is why I said it several weeks ago now, but this is, this is one of just the concrete ways in which I, I mean, they don't care about you yeah, right, right. because they don't, because they don't need you. They don't, they don't need there to be like productive, non-obese, relatively intelligent, relatively well-educated, able to afford a home, Americans living in like Youngstown, Ohio. They don't care because they don't need it to exist anymore. Youngstown used to make steel. Maybe it still makes some things under less conditions for far less wages, but they don't need it anymore. So they, they've moved on. So I kind of have two questions. One is, but don't, don't yeah. they need it somewhere? And then the other one, which I think is more important is, isn't this just yeah. the serpent eating its own tail? They, this has to do, do they need it somewhere? I don't think the answer is just without qualification. Yes. That is, I do not think that whether they whether they believe their own stuff or they don't, I do not think that they sincerely understand where life comes from. So this is a level of disconnection that goes beyond even, okay, I'm, I'm from a city, so I just think of rain as an inconvenience and I've never seen a cow or something, but I do know how to fix certain things with my hands because I have to a still farther level of disconnection, which I'm probably even underestimating is the life of somebody who is completely separated from any means of self-support or repair or production. And that is where our elites live. They don't make anything or fix anything and they don't have to because someone else will do it for them. And so if those are your decision makers, then you're you're just dealing you're dealing with a sense of disconnection from life realities that is extreme right and it doesn't have to do with whether they live in cities or not it has to do with the fact that they themselves never touch anything and are unaffected by it right they can even get divorced in the case of uh, or split up um, in the case of Elon Musk, divorce, I guess, is more for your your older people like Gates or Bezos, and they can lose billions of dollars and it still doesn't affect them. So there is a kind of alchemist's quality about their lives where things are just transmuted into gold that gives unreality to their personal life. And when you have unreality in your personal life or when you don't feel the weight of reality yet, we see this with people that are high on drugs or drunk or too young to understand the consequences of their actions, you will do things that are utterly insane and, and maybe even self-destructive and destructive of others. Well, that gets to the serpent in its own tail. And, and that, I mean, I, I got to push that into the the entire debt monetary system that we've been talking about. And we, we started it in one sense, the, the very, we started the conversation a while back in uh, it, the very concept of, of debt-based security yeah. is like nibble the tail and it, how long can you eat yourself until until it's all gone and we're we're in the end game of that in many ways yeah and that has to do with an ancient assertion about usury that i, I don't know if we discussed when we talked about currency strictly speaking 
But the idea that because usury is unnatural, like sodomy, it will be its own punishment. So if you think about Paul's description of sodomy in Romans 1, it is they receive in their own bodies the penalty due. And that the, the fate of the usurer, the one who is living off debt and interest, off unnatural things, off things that are literally unproductive, not in the sense that he gets nothing that he wants, but that he, what he does get is obtained by unnatural means, satisfaction derived from what is contrary to nature, that it will be its own punishment. And that is a major difference that you see between America when the stock certificates for public companies featured belching smokestacks versus today where, I mean, if, when I see corporate advertising that has like an actual like white male in it, it's, it's pretty rare, you know the agenda is just totally different. The The dominance of ESG, even within the corporation, not to speak of among investors, is enormous. The change is that the Belching Smokestack stock certificate is also an optimistic statement about the future, just like ESG is, but it's a future in which we're making something. <laughs> Whereas today, it's just, it's, it's just a certain sort of cultural Marxist future in which we're all together in a utopian fashion, but, but like on the basis of what that's never really stated. And you can get a lot done if this doesn't get blown up. You know, we work got blown up. If the listener would, would look up the story of we work, there's even an entire podcast about it, which is well told, but the, the stupid thing about stories about we work podcasts and articles and stuff about this, the implosion of this kind of commercial rental company with this Silicon Valley ethos uh, run by Adam Newman, who is himself Israeli, is they act like it's unique. <laughs> the, the creation of value that does not exist or the assertion that there is value in something or a future in something that is, if you stop for five seconds and realize I know you're saying sustainable, but what I'm seeing is unsustainable. That's everywhere. That's not, that's not unique to certain shysters, right? It, we've, got, we've got usury and, and snake oil salesmen everywhere. And that is, I mean, you're putting, it in, you're putting it in mythic terms, but I mean, I'm saying the same thing is that that will consume itself, that will destroy itself. There's just, there, there is no other option. All right. So you got the question, do we hate limits? And, and my answer is uh, yes, because we want to be our own gods. And uh, in many ways, the, the mythology of promise that is running this unnatural religion of yeah. natural preservation uh, is based on the idea that you will be free as a <clears throat> herd animal completely yeah. controlled by the global technocracy to live without limits uh, that you know, including your own sexuality, right? Especially your own sexuality. Right. And yeah. the, the irony of, of sexuality everlastingly being the great metaphorical sin of the old Testament uh, and, and not really ever being just about sexuality, right? It's, it's always about a whole lot more than that. Um, I, I don't think that should be lost on the listener here either. I, I mean, I guess yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I, by the question I meant, 
I, I do not hate limits. I, I think limits are natural and they are the foundation of any ethic about nature, right? Whether you want to call that an environmental ethic. I don't really like the word environment. I think it's kind of cold, but an ethic of nature, an ethic of the land, an ethic of the landscape that should be an ethic of stewardship because it's, it's not mine. I didn't make it. So I, I should not do whatever I want with it. That will be destructive. Should I do something with it? Yes, because I don't think that human beings are equivalent to all other species. We have a requirement to care, but therefore also in some measure, in some places to transform, to cultivate, in other words, that no other species has. So because I have a different theology, I have a different anthropology. So I have a different ethic concerning the world. I also have a different eschatology. Yeah. Well, I mean, so my answer was yeah. very much based upon, uh, you know, we being uh, humanity as we're experiencing it, um, the, the, the dominant philosophy of the age, the zeitgeist. Yeah. Um, and certainly for those of us who are hoping to create uh, communities in which Christianity endures through the burning down that's taking place right now, limits are going to be a big part of that and discovering natural limits, those yeah. things which nature itself sets in place. That's to find the good goads, you know, the founding things uh, that are going to keep that community formed while everything else is, is disforming and misforming through an attempt to have no form at all. I, I, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm saying what I'm saying because I'm thinking almost evangelistically about the left, because I, I don't, I don't only think about what kind of community will I myself make. I also think about how can these things be mobilized in larger ways. And one of those ways is that care for what is called the environment or Earth Day or something is I think it is a twisting of something that is an actually good impulse, which is not to be arrogant about the world and the world that you're in, not always to cut against the grain, but to work with the factors that you have and the nature of the wood you're working with or the way that the land falls over your property and therefore the way that the water flows. Can I, can I jump good. on that right back to yeah, um, what we were saying earlier about the dogmatism we find in Lutheran circles where you have, uh, you get together with the Lutheran pastors and they they just dismiss composting, right? Oh, it's a stupid thing. Why would you ever do that? And, and what you're talking about is like, and we got into like wisdom versus dogmatism, like just because someone's made a false religion of it doesn't mean that there isn't wisdom to be found in caring about nature itself. And being part of nature, I think that's such a absolutely dynamic point for us. Um, and and I agree with you. It's not just about forming these small communities wherever we are. It's about impacting the world with what we know to be true, as as loudly as we can. And I think that the small community building right now is the is the step to being loud later. But then that that in. It is required that we would understand going with the grain of nature is the only way to build. Uh, is absolutely required of us. And to be dismissive of that because we're so comfortable in our, I, I mean, I, I, the images that you, you conjured up for me, you know, I, I, I imagine being at a table at one of these church events where 
85% of us are, are technically obese. There's three to five beers have been had, and we're all going to sit there and cynically just bash our enemies while being frustrated that nothing goes the way we want it to go in our parishes at home. Um, there's something there that's not wise, right? Like, like we're, we're missing something and it's very much at the heart of what you're talking about. I interrupted you in the middle of it, uh, that there is a artistry to wisdom, which is involved in perceiving what really is and loving it for what it is. That if we just dismiss everything that our enemies are saying, we end up dismissing the very things we're there to care about. Yeah, I I th- I think I, I want to be clear that I don't, you know, I'm not just cheerleading everything that has happened since wide scale industrialization, because it does. And you can perceive this through people's simply aesthetic, instinctive reactions to brown fields, to areas that were heavily once and now are no longer industrialized. They are hideous. There is something inside of you that recoils at them even before their decay, the belching smokestacks were not always beautiful or wonderful and were indicative of, as, as ugly things are, indicative of, of poison and destruction. So there, there is something to that. The, the question of scale is a valid question. That is why the, this notion of downshifting, which is one way that some in permaculture have described what you could describe from a different perspective as deindustrialization, has logical validity. Do I want to live in this way? Do I want to go this far? The issue that I have, therefore, with all of the discussions surrounding policy, politics, and widespread changes to everyday life because of man-made climate change is not every single tactic. It is the general strategy of this theologically alien idea that we are in charge of the world in every way yeah. and that I must be forced to believe this lie and then to be coerced into changing everything about my life in order to attain some goal projected on a chart somewhere by a social scientist. That's the issue. It, it's not that we hate scale, even also small scale, or that we love everything that has ever technologically occurred. A lot of it probably is horrible. <laughs> it's that these kinds of things have to be asked in ways that are attentive to to observation and to experience rather than attentive to to dogmatisms. Yeah, it gets down to the anthropogenic question, right? And yeah. and the assumption of the power man has over his days which goes everywhere from, you know, massive social science prophecies about 50 years from now yeah. Uh, all the way down to I wake up in the morning and I have my bullet point list of what I think I'm going to achieve and what it's going to result in. And uh, the wisdom of the scriptures at at every course in that, uh, I think, is summed up in in the idea that, you know, we we roll the dice, but the lot is in the Lord's lap at the end of the day. Yeah. If I believe if I sincerely believe that I'm going to destroy the world, then you would think that I would have a lot more control over my own life than I do. And any religion that is false is going to be built on an overestimation of man's capacities within some frame, right? Capacity to save himself, capacity to rescue his fellow man, whatever, but it's going to be framed as doing your part. And then collectively, probably the hive mind will achieve this, you know, whatever great endeavor. 
And this is, I mean, that is, that is why when I think about even the concept of man-made climate change, I, I do not believe that there is really anywhere left in the Western world that is actually reflectively or reflexively as Americans are mocked as being that is actually individualistic. I, I don't think we are. If we were actually individualistic, we wouldn't have environmental, social, and governance investments. We wouldn't think of people in those groups. We would do free speech. I mean, individualism maybe still existed in 1998. I don't think it does anymore because now we're also collectively responsible for other people's physical health via COVID. And we will be collectively responsible for other people's status as climate refugees status as groups that are affected by climate change, but are not main producers of climate change. That's already a claim about the global South versus the global North. We bear the brunt of your climate change stuff, but you have created most of it, therefore give us money. So I think that we are almost relentlessly collectivistic. And to me, that is, that is also part of the dreariness of climate change as an ideology, but also much of modern life is that in order, in order to get individuals to do great things, they have to be individuals to do those things. There has to be some tolerance of eccentricity in order for that person to carry out what he is doing, especially creatively in an unfettered way. When people are designed just for collective life, there is something stultifying about it because then I will only do what the group approves of. I will only drive the electric vehicle. I will only compost. I will only say what is already accepted as orthodoxy and so on and so forth. And that will decrease innovation, I think, of every kind that would be productive and helpful to man. And that just brings me back to the technology hive mind thing where you're scrolling on your screen and, and that is the collective right there. And right. Yeah. while some of us maybe are able to go in and out, uh, Neo style, Matrix style, you're, you're not going to be completely subsumed. You're going to fight against the agents while you're there. It, it, you got to see that, that for the vast majority of people, uh, for what Luther would have called the commoner, uh, there's no thinking outside that box. None. None. And, and to me, that's a problem. Or is it a solution? You know, you've mentioned before how small groups of individuals can do amazing things when they decide to, in a sense, unplug uh, and work together to affect the herd as a whole. And uh, and that's that's why we're doing this, right? Uh, is we're we're wanting wherever you are as a listener to you to be part of this herd, where you're not going back and just believing every assertion that we've said, um, but where your iron is getting sharpened against ours with the idea that you are going to be an individualistic thinker dedicated to the stewardship of what you've been given where you are. And that in that sense, you're not common minded, but that means though, again, uh, we have to reckon with the problem of the commoner that this is something that, uh, you know, Luther spoke so freely about this, and now it's like prejudiced or something, right? Uh, to, to to think in these terms, but that the the average person that you meet on the street who is just absorbing whatever they're being told uh, has lost the capacity to think and is part of a hive mind, and that that is either the problem or the solution. And and insofar as it can be the solution, is to recognize that we have to um, we have to rise above it, and then 
see where those levers of communication and narrative really are and and take action to preserve them for our own our own agendas and that again means our own communities um, yeah 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 i mean it, the observation that people are not equal to each other also in intelligence or capacity for reason thought is not contra most modern doctrines is not an act of hatred observation of inequality is not hatred it is a love of truth and because i hate lies so much i want the average person to believe truths instead of falsehoods it's it's that simple i don't have to believe that he is like me in every way nor do i have to consciously assert myself as maybe someone who is kind of an intellectually insecure needs to constantly prove he's so much smarter than anyone else but i want uh, people to understand truth in a simple way and that is why above all things god has appointed preaching as the way that he would convey truth to mankind he is well aware that the average person is not going to grasp every single thing that he himself has revealed the average preacher does not grasp who does in fact grasp every single thing he has revealed in scripture the issue is that the average man because he loves mankind he is philanthropos the fathers love to say he is a lover of mankind and he is good because of his philanthropia he wants mankind to know the truth and to be set free by the truth which is very simple in its own way and those dogmas are worth the average man's time everything else isn't and does not need to be treated dogmatically since it is not actually divine dogma and the inability to tell the difference between what is provisional knowledge and what is divine dogma, I think, is is the root of our sickness. You're listening to a brief history of power. You know where to find us, or you wouldn't be here.